This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on contact to send me a message. And now on with the interview. Hi, everybody. This is New Books in Psychology. I'm Eugenio Duarte, your host in Miami. And today I am speaking to Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder, authors of the book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Published in 2018 by Polity Press. Carol Gilligan is a writer, activist, university professor at New York University, and the author of In a Different Voice, one of the most influential feminist books of all time. Naomi Snyder is a research fellow at NYU, co-founder of NYU's Radical Listening Project, and a candidate in psychoanalytic training at the William Allenson White Institute. Carol, Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, Carol, I'm aware that you've written a number of books before. Uh, Naomi, I believe this is your first book. So, Naomi, let me start with you. How does it feel to have this have this book out? Oh, it's incredibly like feels really exciting, and initially felt very surreal. Um, yeah, it, it felt like a really incredible opportunity, especially to write a book with with Carol. I mean, who gets to do that? It's pretty amazing. And, and for you, Carol, I, I know that this comes on the heels of several books that you've written on on this topic. Well, how is this book different for you? Well, first of all, it started with a paper that Naomi wrote for a seminar I was co-teaching at NYU. And the other thing is we wrote this, we wrote the book in two voices. And I love that we did that. And that's how we presented it when we first presented a paper together at White, and then our publisher, John Thompson at Polity, he agreed that the book would be, so there are sections that are Naomi and sections that are Mark Carroll, and the whole book is really, a, a, it's a conversation, it's a dialogue around this question, which, I mean, given everything that's happened, I mean, all the moves to have greater democracy, greater equality, greater, you know, uh, human rights, why does patriarchy persist? It's a real question. And the book uh, is really a conversation between mm-hmm. Naomi and me as we came to three major discoveries that surprised us. And that was our reason for wanting to write the book. And it was fabulous to work together. I just have to say that. Mm-hmm. We had such we amazing. It. Yeah, we missed <laughs> it. We missed writing together. Well, how did, how did you all meet and how did you come to work together? Naomi, I think it's yeah. your story. Okay, so um, so it began in um, the fall of 2014. I'd um, moved to New York to do uh, a master's in in law. I was I was a lawyer, 
um, a pretty um, lost and confused lawyer, um, kind of with a very strong social conscience that had brought me to the field, but really struggling to find my place within it. And I think had turned to to academia in the hope of finding um, some sort of fitting that would feel kind of um, more fitting for for the way that I wanted to forge my career. And um, in fact, it was kind of, it's, you know, do you ever have those sliding door moments? Um, This the the decision to take Carol's course feels like my most driving door moment. I um I was due to be so when you're doing a master's at NYU in the law school, it's really an exercise in the capitalist system. You have a certain number of points and you have to bid them on on which course you you um you want to do. And I bid uh, and it, m- most of my points on this this um, course in legal philosophy that was being taught by one of the most preeminent um, professors on that topic, because I felt like that was the course that I should take. And um, it was about two weeks before starting, and there was this little voice in my head that was saying, but what about that other course? Because basically there was this other course, which was the course that I really wanted to do, which was entitled Resisting Injustice. And that course was taught by Carol Gilligan and David Richards, who's a constitutional law professor at NYU. And it sounded like nothing I had ever encountered before. It was this incredible mix of um, psychoanalysis, psychology, law, theatre. Um, and it sounded like both both kind of terrifying and, and stepping into the unknown, but just this deep sense that this was the course that I was supposed to take. So I got in touch and asked if I could join, and they, they let me in. And it was suddenly being given a language for something that I felt but had never really known how to describe before, sort of realizing that all these ways in which you felt that, or I felt that my voice was too loud, that I wasn't quite getting it, that um, there was something just, just wrong with me, suddenly I had a name for this, and it was patriarchy that there was something that actually I was encountering in the world that was stifling and oppressive and now I had a language for it and also I had a different framework because I've been so immersed in law since 18 I started studying law that encountering the world of psychology where there's a different logic where you you're not stuck between is it this or is it that um was incredible and I think more than anything it was um able being able to bring my own voice and experience into what are real um social political questions that they're not something that you just have to think about abstractly there's a place for thinking about your own experience and it was and that's what David and Carol encouraged us to do each week we would read something and then we would reflect on it not you know, I'd learned how to get the A paper in law. And that was like, how do you say the smartest thing? And that was not what they were asking for. They wanted to know what was our, our real 
thoughts and feelings about it. So we read um, in one book, uh, one week we read Carol's 2001 book called In a Birth of Pleasure. In- the Birth of the Pleasure. <laughs> the Birth of Pleasure. What was I mixing that with? The Birth of Pleasure. And that was the first time that I'd ever encountered the word patriarchy. I really had no idea what it is before. And Carol probably do a better job of explaining what you say in that Well, no, but it was that book that was the first time I brought the word patriarchy into my research because I had done this this study with girls, following girls from ages 7 to 17. And as they reached adolescence, they... I saw them coming up against a force that was really in the world that basically said to girls, look, if you want to have relationships, don't say what you're really feeling mm-hmm. and thinking. Um, don't say what you see. Don't sort of draw on your own experience. Learn what other people want you to feel and think and say that, and then you'll get A's and you'll be included and everything else. And basically... Um, I thought I have to name this force that girls were resisting. It was like a healthy body resists um, infection. I thought a healthy psyche resists this cultural force that was saying to them, if you'll silence yourself and not say what you really feel and think, then you can have relationships. But what sort of relationships are these? And girls were seeing that. So anyway, that was the first time I brought the word patriarchy into my research because Otherwise, if you're a psychologist and you use the word patriarchy, your work is suddenly seen as being, quote, political, not scientific. But otherwise, you talk about girls being up against was problems with their mother or problems with separation or, you know, this and this and this. It was all very personal things. It's not to say those don't exist, but they were also up against something very real in the culture. So that was mm-hmm. the meeting point of Naomi and me. And Naomi wrote a paper that week for our seminar that, I mean, it just made me think, wow, who is this? (laughs) Excuse me. And so then we started talking and I said uh, her notion was that maybe patriarchy persists, not simply because people in power don't want to give up their power and privilege, which is certainly true, but also because it serves a psychological function. It's a protection against loss. I thought that was I mean, it's like taking my argument from the book, Birth of Pleasure, and carrying it one step Mm -hmm. further. So I said to Naomi, let's work on this. Let's look into, you know, would you like, and in fact, I suggested she go to the White Institute and take some of their seminars to learn some psychology. And then I invited her to present with me at the White Institute. And we presented a paper which got published by their journal, Contemporary Psychoanalysis, called The Loss of Pleasure or why we are still talking about Oedipus. And that was the the kernel that became our book. So I was playing around in my head with the title of your current book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Because it's, it's a very pointed and specific question. And to me, that word persist is doing a lot of work in the question. When I think of the word persist, and I don't know if this is the Oxford definition of, of the word persist, but to me, when something persists, it means that it's lived on past the point at which you expected it to die or or no longer be around. Are you all surprised that we're still dealing with patriarchy at this point in time? Yes, I am. <laughs> I think... Well, can you tell us about that? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, okay. I, first of all, I was involved in, uh, very active in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the women's movement, which are all were movements toward a greater realization of the basic principles of a democratic society, which is equal voice and human rights and respect for persons. And uh, what is, you know, you, you can't have a democracy unless you have people who have, can speak from their experience it's, and also negotiate, navigate conflicts in relationship and patriarchy. And we see this being played out in this country right now, right this very minute. Um, it's that it's not equal voice. It's the voice of the father. That's the voice of morality and law. So, you know, basically when our president says uh, it's true because I say it's true and I'm the winner, not the loser, and I'm the strong one, not the weak one, and I'm the president and you're the this. And so you don't need any further. It's, it's true because he says it. That's a patriarchal mm-hmm. structure. It's not, and our, the contrast we draw is not, but is between patriarchy, which elevates the voices of some men over other men, white men, straight men, European men, and all men over women, and democracy, which is based on equal voice, which is you don't have equal voice, you can't resolve conflicts in relationship. So patriarchy resolves conflicts through the use of force or domination. I'm the stronger one, I'm the better one. You hear this language all the time from mm-hmm. our president. And I think in a way, like as since, I mean, Freud pointed this out, right, in Civilization and its Discontents, that even though he called it civilization, what he's really speaking to is patriarchy because it's a certain type of system. And in that he speaks to the 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 pain and the 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 all of the kind of psychological fallout of that. And I think that's something that um we're becoming more and more aware of, right? With everything on toxic masculinity is how it's not just women that are oppressed by this. It is men as well. And I think that's one of the kind of really shifting the framework, revolutionary aspects of Carol's work was pointing to the contradiction between patriarchy and who patriarchy says we are, like what patriarchy says we should be and who we really are as humans and what we really desire, which is love, connection and relationship. So I think that it's in, it's, it's from that starting point that then the question becomes, okay, if, if what, if the kernel of psychological and social health and well-being is is responsive con- connection, is is living in a culture that cares for you, where you feel recognized and seen, respected, then from that point of view, why do systems of oppression still persist? Undoubtedly, there are reasons like that we speak about in the book, you know, there's, you have a position of power. Why would you want to give it up? But there is also a paradox there that, that I think underlies our use of the word persists. Tell me about that paradox. I I, I see the paradox. I mean, on a really personal level, and I think this is where I began it with the book is that on the one hand, we can see and feel that it is true that Authentic, responsive connection is what feels good. On the other hand, it feels terrifying and we turn away from it. And instead, we find ourselves becoming who that other person wants us to be. We exchange kind of 
a, a more meaningful, responsive, authentic, real connection for something that feels um, scripted and secure, but also empty and frustrating. I think that that kind of to just take it on to the really psychological level is the psychological paradox that we're pointing out. Why do we exchange um, these responsive connections for um, these scripted and stultified ways of being and relating? And I, let's get into that because that's one of the, if, if not the central idea of your book and, and one of the unique contributions that it's making to the conversation about patriarchy, that people give up relationship to have quote unquote relationship. Why? Why, why do we do that? Well, because I basically, uh, I mean, I think there are two levels. The, the level that came out... This was a notion that first came out of my research with girls, because basically, as girls were moving from childhood into adolescence, I mean, they were basically offered a lot of incentives from doing very well in school and everything else to having many friends and being popular, the kind of girl who people wanted to be with. If they would basically give up their voice, an honest voice, in order to be with other people. But if you're not saying what you're feeling and thinking, you're not present with other people. So they were asked to give up relationship. That is the desire. It's a very basic human desire to live in connection with yourself and with other people in order to have, quote, as you said, relationships, um, meaning to be included, to be chosen, to you know do well and to be promoted and so forth and so on. And uh, so there was on that level, and then what Naomi added to that, which was, and I thought it was just stunning, um, was that if you've experienced loss, and Naomi writes about her own experience at the age of five of the death of her father, then relationships carry with them. They become very fraught because to get it, to enter into a relationship, much as that may be what you want, it's also to put yourself in, in the way of loss. So to avoid loss, we avoid relationships. And patriarchy basically says if you give up relationships, you can have, I mean, this is, you know, this is what's offered in, in Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, honor, riches, marriage, blessing, all the goods of this world will come to you if you will give up relationship. And so uh, Naomi said we have to look at that this notion that it's out of because even though what we want is relationships we're also afraid of relationships because it means we're exposing ourselves to loss and to the vulnerability of um you know losing again so yeah and i think what um what we and what we discovered was not only that patriarchy offers these incentives that make the kind of compromise formation seem um, appealing, that there's actually a really precise mechanism that underlies the process, which is not just about offering incentives, but also about rendering the possibility of relationship impossible. So so our discoveries began... I was going to say, shouldn't we say our 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 three three discoveries? We're going to say our three discoveries. So our first discovery was... 
we read Bowlby's work on loss, the psychoanalyst John Bowlby's work on loss, and he says the healthy response to loss is protest, that you protest the loss and try to re- restore the connection that you've lost. And when protest fails, then what you see, and this is Bowlby who observed children who were separated from their parents or adults who had lost relationships, when protest fails, then comes, or is ineffective, then comes despair, and then comes detachment. And then he described two kinds of detachment, which was compulsive uh, detachment, which is a compulsive self-sufficiency, the sense of, I'm a, I, I can take care of myself, why would I need a relationship, I'm not a baby, I don't need my mommy, that kind of thing. And then compulsive caregiving, this compulsive caregiving of other people in the hope that maybe someone will notice that would someone please care for me? And we suddenly saw that these, what Bowlby describes as pathological responses to loss correspond to the ideals of masculinity and femininity in patriarchy. The autonomous man, the heroic man, and the the selfless woman who always cares for other people and is endlessly giving and, you know, seemingly has no needs or desires of her own. So that was our first discovery. And our second discovery was that the initiation into patriarchy follows the same trajectory that Bowlby described in children's responses to loss, which is first you get the protest over the loss of relationship, and then it's followed by the sense of the futility of that. So you get despair and detachment. And then the third, which was most astonishing to us, which was that as therapists know that relationships depend on the ability to repair and breaks or ruptures in connection. And what patriarchy does is it shames the move to repair in the name of, you know, if you're not a real man, why would, would it's unmasculine or it's unfeminine? Mm-hmm. Would you add to that, Naomi? I think that really sums it up. Just to kind of emphasize the point, though, that That's why you get the shift from protest to despair and detachment, because at the point of protest is when patriarchy comes in and shames the protest. So that the very kind of mechanism that otherwise would be in a way of repairing the connection becomes a further threat to that connection. So, for example, if you're a woman living in patriarchy and you want to protest the rupture in relationship, you're heard as selfish, crazy, bossy, a bitch, all of these things so that actually the move to repair becomes a further threat. So in that way, you're, you're compelled onto this path of despair and then detachment. So in a way, you're, the theory that you're outlining starts off describing a phenomenon that, that could be understood to be pretty universal, the, the terror of loss and the defense against it. So I'm wondering, in, in your thinking, how, how is it that gender gets mixed up with this? You know, how is it that men versus women end up getting assigned different scripts for how to relate, how to handle loss, how to be? Well, first of all, let me say what's also universal as well as loss and fearing loss is the response to loss, which is the protest and the move to repair the the rupture. 
And you can see this in one-year-old children. I mean, it's just a universal human response that in the face of a loss of connection, you move to restore the connection. And then the thing about the gender is that democracy, gender is irrelevant. I mean, it's, it's just people. Everyone has an equal voice. Patriarchy is based on gender, and it privileges some men over other men. So gender becomes, in a sense, the foundation of a patriarchal order. And it, it, the reason that it's gender becomes so central to this is become, because men who are supposed to be the superiors are said not to need relationships, and women who are among the inferiors, along with those men who are not the superiors, men of color, gay men, and so forth, are said not to have a voice that anyone would listen to. So uh, within patriarchy, it's that gender split that, you know, women need relationships and men have selves. Uh, They split human capacities into masculine and feminine, which is detrimental, as Naomi said, both, I mean, to all genders across the gender spectrum. So what you could see right now in the experimentation with gender and the protest about the gender binary, is it's really a protest against patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You, you know, because this interview is not broadcast live, I typically, I typically don't ask questions that place us in time. <laughs> but you referenced, referenced this earlier, I think, Carol. I can't help but break that rule today in my awareness that Quite literally, as we are. Yeah, I was waiting for to say this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're we're in a moment. The Senate is literally deciding at this moment whether our president um, has the right to do whatever he wants in his power or not, and. As we may we may get offline today after this interview and and have the answer to that question in our newsfeed. Does patriarchy help either of you to think about or organize your thoughts about? Well, that's that's the definition of patriarchy. I mean, one of the president's lawyers said that anything that's in his interest and that he wants to do, he's entitled to do because he's the president. And you could just substitute he's the patriarch. And the patriarch, it's his voice is the definitive voice. It's the arbiter of truth, reality, morality. He doesn't need to justify anything he says because the justification is his is the voice of authority, the voice of morality Mm -hmm. and law. And it's pure patriarchy. And it's so interesting. I mean, in a sense, it really does kind of underscore the title of our book, which is we're in 2020. And this is about to prevail in the U.S. Senate, that logic, that voice, as opposed to the voice of, you know, we the people, and could we please hear the evidence and the witnesses? No, it's the voice of the patriarch, and what he does is right because he does it. And you can also see the mechanism we're describing in the sort of pushback against any resistance to it, right? Like the way that he kind of treats any kind of the attempt to um, have a fair trial around this is actually seen as um, disobedience, as um, a threat 
to the national interest. Um, people are referred to as crazy for um, selfish for pushing against it. So you see kind of that distortion of protest, which is actually a healthy move to restore democracy, gets reframed as a danger to the nation. And I think it's that kind of, you see that on a social level, we're talking about that's kind of the the the, the um the seeds of kind of what we're describing. But you could look at those impeachment hearings where the issue is whether to have a fair trial with witnesses and evidence or not, as, as it's like the, the, uh, it's playing out the battle between patriarchy and democracy. Mm-hmm. And as you say, because of the composition of the Senate right now, it looks like patriarchy is going to prevail. Mm-hmm. You would think, I would think that we live in a time in which this kind of assertion "Quote unquote of power by our president, where where one says, "Well, I get to do whatever I want." You'd think we live in a time where where that kind of thing is is dismissed or or mocked, mocked, and and not taken seriously. So I'm curious to know how do you all make sense, not just of our president and the way he thinks that he can wield his power, but in the complicity of his his followers, his party, who are are falling in line and defending his supposed right to do whatever he wants. How do you make sense of that? I'm going to let Naomi because she's mm-hmm. objective. She's British. <laughs> Gosh, um, I mean, one thought that I have is I think one of the um. One of the insights that I hope our book adds is a kind of um, psychological lens for understanding why people assume certain political positions and then become kind of complicit in a system that ultimately harms us all. So in that kind of detachment kind of attitude of like, self-sufficient, I can do what I want and I know what's best for you. I think, you know, there's, um, Trump is voicing what I think for um, a lot of um, men in this culture is a stance, as we've described, that's been kind of initiated into them and then that for for the reasons that we described is something that that they have to hold on to. And it it serves a political purpose. It's a way of they're holding on to power, but it also has a really vital psychological function at this point for them, which is to defend them against a feeling of vulnerability and being disempowered that is within a patriarchal patriarchal culture, shameful to acknowledge. So I think underlying the really defensive support of this stance is a kind of incredible feeling of vulnerability and anger and frustration and hurt that can't be voiced because to voice it would to be no longer to, to, to no longer be a man. And I think a similar dynamic can kind of why why are women complicit within patriarchy? I think in ways because um, 
there's there is there's another voice, but that voice has come to be heard within oneself as 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 shameful or um destructive selfish selfish yeah that's helpful thank you <laughs> because it's such a it's such a vexing thing to watch but it's it's helpful to hear that underneath the bravado um and the unyielding support for such a force there's there's vulnerability i i think there's fear maybe too um fear of not mattering fear of losing what one thinks one needs in order to matter in the world. Um, I, I want to ask you about one of the chapters in your book that is entitled, Knowing This, Then What? Because I think a lot of us are wondering that. So w- quite literally, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we fix this? Well, I think, um, uh, first of all, is to recognize that protest is the healthy response mm. to loss. And we, we pick up on a distinction that Bowlby makes between the anger of hope and the anger of despair. And um, that where we, we end our book on a surprisingly hopeful note, which is to say that the resistance to patriarchy is part of our human, part of who we are as humans. And uh, in other words, that's our our our. our human response is to resist the loss of relationship and you know basically to want to have a voice and to live in relationship which is the requisites both for democracy and for love and so that we have within ourselves the capacity to resist this Mm -hmm. and i think uh knowing this then what is i mean in a way you could say how do you really support and educate mm-hmm. this resistance. And, you know, that's also very alive in our culture right now. I mean, you, it's true. This whole drama that we talk about in the book is really playing out in front of our eyes mm-hmm. at this moment in history. Well, I mean, because I was also, I mean, we also ended on talking about the need for political and a psychological re- revolution in a way that, you know, you can't have political change without this resistance. And the, res- the good news is the resistance, as long as there's patriarchy, there'll be resistance because there's a human response. But the patriarchy will come in and, and shut that down. And so I think on a sort of socio-political level, we need to look at what are, what are the structures that actually um, silence the protest? And, you know, you described the impeachment proceedings, but I've been thinking a lot about the Me Too movement recently, with especially with the kind of the Harvey Weinstein right. trials right now. And I think you can see how, maybe it's because I was a lawyer, but I think you can see how within our legal system, the, the, the apparently neutral and objective rules are kind of designed in ways to privilege some voices and to silence others. And so I think that that where we are now is also about kind of challenging some of the the not just the 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 norms and values of our of our culture, but some of the structures that actually keep those in place. So we are almost out of time. Uh, but before we finish, I always like to invite my guests to tell us about what they have coming up next. For full disclosure to our listeners, you all are presenting on a panel at an upcoming conference in New York City hosted by 
the Willem Allenson White Institute of Psychiatry, Psychoanalysis, and Psychology. And, and the full disclosure is that I will be presenting there as well. I'm also a graduate of that institute, and, and that's how I know you, Naomi. Do you, do you all want to mention the conference and what you'll be presenting about? Oh, sure. definitely. Yes. So the conference is um, March 14th. At, um, it's it's going to be held at Fordham Law School in New York, and the title of the conference is Patriarchy and its discontents. And the morning panel is, um, I think, going to be a really incredible um, opportunity to have a conversation between um, the psychoanalytic and the psychological community with these four um, pioneers of feminist um activism and thinking who are so i think carol described what she's going to talk about better but with carol gilligan carol jenkins who um set up the women's media center and emily mann who was the um director of the mccarthy the mccarter theater at princeton she's a pulitzer prize winning playwright director um she wrote the play having our say and she's directed on Broadway as well as at Princeton and run this amazing theater at Princeton. And she's a playwright and a director, uh, very, very creative, um, also feminist woman. Mm-hmm. And then Gloria Steinem, who probably everybody knows. <laughs> and we're hoping that, you know, in the way that we've described, that patriarchy stands at this apex between psychology and and society and politics and society so we're hoping that this this conference will provide an opportunity for people that stand at the cusp of all those um intersections to to speak together about what we can do hey, let me um, say what you're going to do at the conference so my so i'm speaking on the panel with with Eugenio on um psychoanalysis is potentially liberating potential so hopefully talking about the ways in which um, patriarchy, patriarchy. Uh, psychoanalysis is a kind of tool for unearthing um, unspeakable or um, cult- countercultural narratives um, becomes not just a tool for personal liberation, but um, social liberation. But also, but the tension in doing that, given that psychoanalysis is um, very much embedded within the culture that it's seeking to understand. So, in what ways do we as analysts have to wrestle with um, the patriarchy in our heads and in our institutions in order to achieve that? That sounds very exciting. And just to remind people, the conference takes place. It's called Patriarchy and its Discontents. It's taking place at Constantino Hall at Fordham University on March 14th, 2020. If people want to sign up, they can go to wawhite.org and find more information there. Before we go, is there anything outside of this book that you're working on these days? Uh, well, I've just finished a second novel, which or at least the first draft of it. So that's what I'm working on right now. Congrats. And you, Naomi? <laughs> um, well, I'm in my final year of analytic training, so I'm due to graduate this year and then hopefully 
um, setting up private practice soon. And that's kind of where much of my energy is focused right now. Well, congratulations to you both on those achievements. And also congratulations on the book. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great talking to the two of you. Again, I am speaking to Carol Gilligan and Naomi Snyder, authors of the book, Why Does Patriarchy Persist? Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Thank you.